You come this morning to our seventh in the series, Put Not Your Trust in Princes. And I suspect there will be one additional installment of this probably the next Lord's Day. Now, last Lord's Day, we said that Scripture warns us not to put our trust in princes, yet we continue to try to institutionalize solutions to the problems of our sins in order to overcome their tragic consequences without true reformation and obedience, because that's just too difficult, perhaps impossible to achieve. Samuel warned the people of Israel that if they continued in their sin, God would destroy both them and their king. Their first king, Saul, started out well, but very soon Saul began to wobble and disobey the commandments of God. Perhaps the most tragic failure of Saul took place when God commanded him to wipe out the wicked Amalekites. Saul gathered his army and attacked the Amalekites and was victorious. But he did not obey God's commandment to destroy all that they had. Instead, the Amalekite king Agag was taken alive and the sheep and the oxen and other things were kept. When Samuel confronted Saul about his disobedience, Saul first insisted that he had indeed obeyed the commandment of God. But when the noise of the cattle betrayed his lie, Saul then blamed the people for not destroying all the animals, claiming they had done so to offer them as sacrifices to the Lord. Thus Saul assigned the disobedience of Israel as being unto the worship of the Lord. Saul could have acted in obedience to God on behalf of his people and ordered the final destruction of the Amalekites and the spoils. But instead, Saul continued to insist that he had indeed obeyed God. Even after being rebuked, Saul seemed not to grasp his wildly inappropriate way of thinking that disobeying God was to be excused if done for a worthy reason. Saul attempted to justify the disobedience by trying to dedicate it to the Lord's worship. Samuel rebuked this attempt at self-justification head-on. To obey is better than sacrifice. God would rather you not sacrifice and obey Him than to disobey Him so that you can perform sacrifices. No matter what noble purpose we use to justify our disobedience, that can in no way cleanse our acts from the filth of sin and their defiance against God. Saul finally admits that he sinned against God, but explains that he only did so out of the fear of his people. Saul wanted the people to follow him and support him as king and thought that by going along with the people's disobedience, he could shore up his position with them. Thus Saul fulfills Samuel's warning. If the people continue in sin, God will destroy the people and their king. The people sin and the king sins in response to the people's desires and the people sin in response to the king's foolishness and sin, resulting in the destruction of them both. Saul then begs Samuel to sacrifice and worship with him to honor him before the people and their leaders to pretend that everything was right between Saul, Samuel, and the Lord. This is the second time recorded that Saul has used religious ritual as statecraft to shore up his standing with the people 
Saul exploits sacrifices and the worship of God as mere political theater. There would be no more pretenses of the worship of God to strengthen the support of the people in Saul's future. Going forward, Saul would use violence and thwarted attempts at murder to try to get what he wanted. But how different is our Lord Jesus? We see this clearly when the devil tempted Jesus early in his ministry. Jesus rejected Satan's taunt that he uses power to make food from stones to satisfy his hunger. Jesus rejected Satan's offer to give him the rule of the world in exchange for bowing down to Satan and worshiping him. This was a shortcut to exaltation which Christ utterly rejected. He refused to commit the idolatry that Saul took part in. No matter what supposed good reason the devil gave to justify it. Jesus rejected Satan's suggestion that he presume upon God's promises to Messiah to make a big public show to prove he is Messiah and therefore could not be destroyed. Jesus thus teaches his people that behaving recklessly and presumptuously is a wicked exploitation of God's sovereign promises to us. In short, the devil tempted Jesus with a variety of opportunities to sin and fail, a variety of the same opportunities that our leaders so easily fall into. But Christ would not disobey God's commandments no matter what good reason some might give to justify it. When Peter tried to dissuade Christ from obeying his Father's will that he suffer and die on the cross, Jesus rebuked Peter to his face. Christ could not be browbeaten by his people to break God's commandment like Saul could. And Christ would not bow to their displeasure in order to do so as Saul did. Isaiah had foretold this very uprightness of Messiah. God would put His Spirit upon Christ and delight in His obedience in all things. Jesus would not fail nor be discouraged in His ministry and travails until He had completed His work and won the victory. Finally, Jesus never tried to shift the blame onto His people like Saul did. Our Lord Jesus instead shifted that blame from us onto Himself. We had sinned and disobeyed God's commandments, but the Lord laid on Jesus all of our iniquities. Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. God punished Jesus in our place and for our crimes, just like Isaiah the prophet had foretold. Our good King Jesus is a King who makes no excuses for His people's sin, who leaves no blame upon His people at all. He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the cross. Jesus takes away our blame, our sin, by shifting it upon Himself. Note the stark contrast between King Saul and King Jesus. Saul tried to spread the blame for his sin onto the people. And in the end, God's judgment fell. But God is satisfied with His people and satisfied with our good King Jesus. Jesus unwinds the curse that Samuel spoke, that the people's sin would ultimately destroy them and their king. Rather than Jesus being destroyed by our sin, our King is glorified by His obedience and sacrifice, and in turn, His people are sanctified and glorified by their King. 
But I wanted to say a few more things about the contrast between Saul and the people's sin and Jesus and His people's sin. Samuel's curse was that the sin of the people would destroy both them and their king. We've seen how Saul became entangled in Israel's sin, their desires, their fears, their lusts. Saul sought to accommodate them, to validate them, and even to participate in them, and sometimes to provoke them by his own wrongdoing. The people's sin resonated with Saul's broken, sinful nature. And in sympathy with their sin, he sinned as well, and vice versa. There were flaws in his character. There were the flaws in his heart. There was the sin nature, the propensity towards disobeying God's commandments that lies in all the hearts of the human race because of the fall in the garden at the beginning. You remember that the Scriptures warn in several places that we ought not to be polluted by the sins that we see or that we are around in others. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Well, isn't that the whole premise of democracy? That if most of the people are doing it, it must be right. But the Scriptures say that what is right and wrong is not determined by what the people decide. It's determined by God's law. And the people either conform or abuse or violate that law to their own peril. And anyone who follows a multitude to do evil will also do evil themselves and will be judged for it. And then in another place, we might translate the text as evil associations corrupt good conduct. That if you associate with wicked men, then what starts out as appearance of upright and moral conduct in yourself will be corrupted. It'll be overthrown. It'll be polluted. It'll be cast down. And you remember that the psalmist warns of this in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law shall he meditate day and night. But it was not so with our Lord Jesus, that which was so with King Saul. You remember that the writer of Hebrews summarizes Christ's perfection this way, that He is holy, harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners. Now this does not mean that Christ was cloistered or monastic or that He kept away from sinners, quite to the contrary, but rather that He can be distinguished from sinners in that He does no sin and never did. That He is not among sinners in the sense of joining into their sin, even though He was numbered with the transgressors. The world in its injustice and hatred of Christ numbered Him as a transgressor, counted Him as a transgressor, but He was without sin. And the sins of the Lord's people could not pollute Jesus or tempt Him to disobedience or cause Him to stumble or besmirch Him in any way. You see the difference between Saul and the Lord Jesus. The difference can be partly explained by the fact that 
Saul was a member of Adam's race. That is, he was in Adam. Adam was his federal representative, and from Adam he inherits the corruption of the sin nature. But the Lord Jesus was not in Adam. He is the founder of a different group, if you will. We are in Christ, and we inherit no sin nature or propensity to sin or even guilt from the sin of Christ, for He has no sin. Instead, we obtain the righteousness of God by faith in Christ. So that the Lord Jesus could not be polluted or dragged down by the sin of His people like King Saul was by the sin of His. We must always keep this in mind, this critical distinction between our institutions, our leaders, our rulers, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Our institutions, our leaders, our rulers will always be dragged down by sin in the end. By the sin of the people they represent, by their own individual sin, they will always be polluted, corrupted, and dragged down. And if you grasp that, then you have an understanding of why everything is so messed up in this world. It's no matter how hard we try to build an institution, to institutionalize uprightness and goodness and justice and peace, it, it always falls apart because of our sin, because of our participation in the institutions, influence upon the institutions. It is the sin of the nation that destroys the institutions that the nation desperately and vainly constructs in order to save them by political means, but not by obedience to God's commandments. There is this fundamental distinction between our rulers, our kings, our politicians, our institutions, and the Lord Jesus. Our institutions will always in the end be corrupt and filled with sin. The Lord Jesus will never be corrupt. He will never be sinful. There is that marked distinction. So where should we put our hope for our future, for our peace, for our happiness? It is only in the Lord Jesus. We ultimately destroy by our sin our own institutions and leaders, but we cannot destroy our Redeemer. And our sins, no matter how dark, no matter how bloody, can never take down our good King Jesus. There are examples in Christ's ministry where this is shown both as a ceremonial uncleanness and of moral uncleanness. You read the Gospels and you will be struck by the fact that all of these means by which we are polluted, our institutions are polluted, our kings are polluted, all of the mechanisms that should be obvious to us as believers why when they go up against the Lord Jesus, that doesn't happen to Him, does it? Mark 1 at verse 40, for example, there came a leper to Jesus beseeching Him and kneeling down to Him and saying unto Him, If Thou wilt, Thou canst make me clean. Notice, this leper understands it's the will of Jesus that counts. Not His own will. Not His own decision, but Christ's will, Christ's desire, Christ's power. 
If thou wilt, thou can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him, and said unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. Now, this is a remarkable passage because, of course, it was not lawful to touch a leprous person because their uncleanness would then transfer to the person that touched them. must have made it really hard to be a doctor in those days. I don't know whether there were any doctors amongst Jewish people. must have been hard to be an undertaker because it was unlawful to touch a dead body. If you touched a dead body, you'd be unclean until evening. But the Lord Jesus was not restrained by this. He touched this poor, helpless, unclean man, didn't He? He touched him. Nobody respectable in Israel would go around touching a poor, unclean leper. That's why they had to wear those little signs and cry out, unclean, unclean, or be cast out of the city and live in the wilderness around the city. There was this elaborate separation between people who had leprosy and the rest of society. But Jesus touched him and healed him. But notice that it didn't make Jesus unclean. You see, it worked the opposite direction, didn't it? Jesus made the leper clean. He made the leper clean. This is remarkable because it is a portrait, if you will. It is a metaphor or parable, if you will, of the way in which the Lord Jesus cleanses His people of their sin. Normally, a person implicated by association in the sin of others just becomes polluted themselves, doesn't he? By his friend's sin. But not so the Lord Jesus. Jesus touched this man and made him clean. And who can forget the beautiful incident that we read of this morning, the woman with the issue of blood. And the law said that anyone she touched or anything she touched was unclean. If she sat on a chair, if she brushed up against somebody, if she grabbed a hold of somebody, she was a social isolate because anything she touched would be unclean. And this has been going on for 12 years, it says. And I like the fact that Luke, who was the beloved physician, points out that she'd spent all of her money on doctors and nobody could make her well. Nobody could make her well. But what does she do? She sneaks up behind Jesus and says, if I can just touch the hem of His garment, I will be made whole. We remember that beautiful hymn that was written about this incident. She only touched the hem of His garment as to His side she stole amidst the crowd that gathered around Him and straightway she was whole. And the exhortation is, oh, touch the hem of His garment. And you too shall be free. His saving power this very hour will give new life to thee. And what does it say? When she touched the hem of his garment, the Lord Jesus asked the question, Who touched me? And Peter, Mr. Practical, he said, Well, a lot of people are touching you. You're in a crowd and a throng is gathered around you. What do you mean? But Jesus didn't mean, you know, who touched him in that sense. What he meant was, Who touched me? in faith and received cleansing by my power. And of course, Jesus knew who it was. 
This was all designed to bring out this confession by this woman. He knows that someone touched him, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. Notice the direction of the power. The uncleanness had no power to render Christ unclean or His garment unclean. Rather, His power to heal, to make whole, rendered her uncleanness a nullity. She was healed of her uncleanness by the mighty power of Jesus. Do you see how this pictures the difference, the mighty difference between Jesus and Saul? Saul was made unclean by the sin of his people that ultimately he participated in and provoked. But not so the Lord Jesus. He rendered those people he interacted with as clean and pure and spotless. The woman was made clean by the power of Christ. Now recall that Jesus was on the road to go to raise what turned out to be a dead little girl who had died in her room from an illness. And you remember he said, she's not dead, but she sleeps. And they laughed him to scorn because they knew she was dead. Jesus didn't mean that she wasn't really dead. What he meant was that death to him is no more difficult than waking up a sleeping person. You go through the Scriptures and you'll see that oftentimes the death of the Lord's people is accounted as mere sleep. Remember he said that about Lazarus. Lazarus is asleep, but I go to awaken him. He's been in the ground four days. And then he says, well, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sake that the power of God might be revealed, that the glory of God might be revealed in this. So here the Lord Jesus goes, but remember, we read the text this morning. He goes up to this dead little girl in a bed with her mom and dad and two of his disciples. What does it say? He took her by the hand and said, little girl, arise. And she arose. And he instructed parents to give her some food. You remember that to touch a dead body would render a man unclean. But you notice that the death doesn't flow into Jesus from the dead girl. Life flows from Christ into the sleeping girl. And she rises up again alive. You see how the, 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 the reversal of the roles here, that Saul was rendered unclean, impure, sinful, disobedient, both on his own account and by his association and by his interaction with his people's sin. But the Lord Jesus, He brings life to those who are dead. Neither did Christ's association with sinners pollute Him as Saul's did Him. In Matthew chapter 9, we read these words, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now remember, Matthew was a tax collector, which was a word, an epithet used to describe wicked, sinful people. He collected taxes for the tyrannical 
pagan usurpers of Israel's government, the Romans. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, that is, in Matthew's house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? You see, the Pharisees thought that to associate with these wicked people, these sinful people, why that would undermine Christ's claim to be the Messiah. That would prove that He was really a guilty sinner just like they were. And of course, the Pharisees thought of themselves as not being sinners while they were righteous in their own self-righteousness, weren't they? And so they thought, that the Lord Jesus associating with sinners and eating with them and receiving them, entertaining their questions and interacting with them on a close personal basis was an atrocity. I guess they didn't want to go down the role that Saul had gone down and they wanted to accuse Christ of some sort of corruption or immorality. Notice the Lord Jesus likens Himself to a physician Jesus heard that. He said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole ministry of Christ depended upon His interaction with sinners because He had come to call them to righteousness, to save them, to heal them, to cure them of their crimes against God. And so, of necessity, He must go amongst them and interact with them and be friendly toward them and eat with them and socialize with them and teach them. And notice that He describes Himself as like a physician. Now, sometimes physicians do catch the patient's illness, don't they? We've heard of doctors working in emergency rooms, catching the COVID and dying. No doubt many instances, this is why they wash their hands and why they wear gloves and so forth and so on. And yet physicians can catch the patient's illness. Imagine how bad it was in olden times before we had antibiotics and means of sanitary interaction with people. It must have been far worse. And yet the Lord Jesus rebukes this idea that somehow he will be rendered polluted or sinful himself by his interaction with poor sinful men. The irony, of course, is that if anybody would pollute anybody, it would be being around a Pharisee. You remember he excoriated them in another place for locking people away from the gospel and making the people that interacted with the Pharisees and were taught by them worse than they were. You see, the sin of sinners does not pollute or deter or destroy the Lord Jesus. Rather, He takes our sin away. This was the opposite of the way it all worked against King Saul, isn't it? Some might object, but our sins are laid on Jesus, aren't they? What does that do to our Lord Jesus? Remember in 2 Corinthians 5 at verse 21, God hath made Christ to be sin for us, He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Our sin was taken 
by God and laid on Jesus. He was made sin for us. He who knew no sin. He was perfect in all of His ways. And yet our sin was imputed upon Him. It was laid upon Him. In a vicarious way, He suffered the punishment and died for our sin that was laid upon Him. Our sin was imputed to Christ. He was treated and judged as guilty in our place at the cross. But He was never morally polluted by our sin. This is a big hang-up amongst people who deny the substitutionary atonement. They pretend that if our sin was imputed to Christ, that would morally pollute Christ. But the Scriptures never teach that. They don't teach that at all. To be treated as guilty, to be legally judged as guilty, to be punished as guilty does not make Christ in any way polluted or in any way a sinner. That's why it's heretical to teach that Christ became the greatest sinner. He didn't become the greatest sinner. He was treated like the greatest sinner. He was substituted in the place of those sinners for whom He died and treated as guilty in our place. But He was never morally polluted by our sin. He did not, like Saul, participate in the committing of our sin, you see. Our sin, the grossest and the vilest of our sin, could never influence Christ to disobey the commandments of the Lord. Could never influence Christ to participate, to take up by His own action and engage in our sin. You know, this this is a big distinction between not only the Lord Jesus and Saul, but the Lord Jesus and all of us. We all, by our associations, are sometimes drawn into sin, aren't we? We've mentioned this earlier in this very message. But not so the Lord Jesus. He could never be polluted morally by our sin, even though it was laid upon Him. But notice this verse also teaches that Christ being made sin for us, and the consequence is we're made the righteousness of God in Him. You see, this is a parallel between the removal of the uncleanness from the leper. Christ makes him clean. Christ makes the poor woman with the issue of blood clean. He heals her defect. Christ takes away death from the little girl and raises her up to life. And so too, when Christ has made sin for us, and we're made the righteousness of God in Him. Isn't that an astounding thing? Saul could only be rendered sinful by the sin of his people. He could not render his people righteous by his own obedience or by his death, could he? Saul's pollution by the sin of his people and falling into sin himself wrought not righteousness in Israel. It wrought no salvation. But Christ does. Another place where uh, this is taught is in Galatians 3. We read the whole chapter this morning, but consider verse 10. For as many are as of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. So Paul is setting up this dichotomy between 
Righteousness which is by faith in God's promises versus righteousness which is by keeping of the law. And the law cannot be kept by faith as some heretics teach us and righteousness obtained thereby. It's not kept by being in the Spirit and therefore obtaining righteousness in that way. No, it is only by faith in the promises of God and in His Son, the Lord Jesus, that a man obtains righteousness apart from, without the attempt at self-righteousness by law-keeping. Then he says at verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Now this, we've spent 21 sermons, didn't we? Talking about Christ and the curse of the law. The curse of the law is not a sign, it's not a designation, it's not just a grouping. It's the actual promise and inevitable execution of God's wrath against lawbreakers. That's what the curse of the law is. But Christ redeemed us. He bought us out of it by paying the price, by being made a curse for us. But this does not mean that Christ was rendered polluted or sinful in and of Himself. No, He took on Himself the consequences of our disobedience and lawlessness and sin. That is the curse, the promise of judgment, the reality of judgment, the experience of judgment, the satisfaction of judgment by God for our crimes. That's what it means for Him to be made a curse for us. Not participating in our sins, not made morally impure by our sins, but rather taking on Himself all the judgment for our sins imputed to Him. He was subject to the judgment of the law for our sins. Though He had done none of those crimes Himself. And the consequence is not that Jesus was polluted, but rather that we are redeemed. Notice the inversion there. Saul participated in the sins of his people and he was condemned. The Lord Jesus took our sins by imputation only and was punished in our place. And the result is that we're redeemed. Nothing that Saul ever did could redeem his people, could it? No, it just confirmed them in their guiltiness, in their judgment. We're redeemed from the judgment that we deserve because Jesus was made a curse for us and paid all the debt for our sins. Peter summarizes the truth nicely in 1 Peter 2. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. He did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, but committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously, who His own self bare our sins in His own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. You see, He took our unrighteousness and was punished for it. He bore our sin in His own body on the tree. All of that done without any rendering of the Lord Jesus as unclean or immoral or polluted or any such thing. But notice the consequence that we, you see, might live unto righteousness. Where we were unrighteous, the work of Christ rather than participating in our sin in such a way as to render Himself unclean 
and to magnify our crimes and make them more obnoxious before God. No, the Lord Jesus bore our sins and was punished for them on the cross that we might live unto righteousness. He takes away the deadness and the corruption and the judgment of sin and He renders to us or He makes us alive again unto obedience and to righteousness. Jesus paid the sin debt for us. Now, it was foretold by Isaiah, wasn't it? All these beautiful truths about the Lord Jesus. God hath laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Talks about the judgment, but then in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush Jesus. He hath put him to grief. But thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now notice from this text that God is satisfied with Jesus and satisfied with the sacrifice that He made and with the wrath that He bore from God in our place and because our sins were laid on Him. You remember Psalm 22 describes the forsakenness of Messiah at Calvary by the Father, which means not that the Father was not there. God is everywhere. It doesn't mean that the Father didn't know Christ anymore. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that the Father delivered Christ up to the death and the judgment in part at the hands of wicked men, did not withhold that wrath, did not bar that wrath, did not rescue Him immediately from that wrath, but rather that He left Him to be judged by man and by God for the sin of His people laid upon Him. But notice later on in Psalm 22, Messiah says this, God has not despised the affliction of the afflicted one. You see, for all of this, there was no despising of Christ by God the Father in the death that Christ died or in the imputation of our sin upon Christ. None of these things made God despise the Lord Jesus as the sacrifice. Rather, God is satisfied with Jesus. He's satisfied. That's what it means. It pleased the Lord to crush Him. God is satisfied with that. It, it was suitable and it accomplished the purpose for which it was rendered against Christ that God should crush Him at the cross and put him to grief. Why? Because he was satisfied with the sacrifice and the judgment which Christ was paying in the place of his people as rendered against him by a holy and righteous God. It satisfied God. It satisfied all of his demands of justice that he should crush Jesus for us in our place, our sins having been laid upon him. Now, this is a big problem for people who deny substitutionary atonement 
They assume that if Christ took on our sin, if He had our sin imputed to them, then obviously He must have become obnoxious, hated by God, but that's not the case at all. The Scriptures say to the contrary that God is pleased with the sacrifice of Christ. You see, Saul's destruction by his own sin and the people's resulted in his being rejected by God as king, but Christ taking away the sin of His people at Calvary is entirely acceptable to God and well pleases Him. It brings satisfaction to God and closes out the case of divine justice against the Lord's people. We read of this in Ephesians 5 at verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for sin to God for a sweet-smelling savor. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus that He made for His people, the way in which He bore our sins in His own body on the tree, the way in which He was punished in our place, the way in which He accepted the wrath of God against our sin laid upon Him, all of this was a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. It pleased God to observe and to receive this sacrifice of Christ. He was not turned away in some sort of hatred and disgust at the sacrifice of Christ. No, it was a sweet-smelling savor unto God. It reminds us of the words of that beautiful hymn we sing, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. And the consequence is that God has highly exalted Jesus because He was obedient unto the death of the cross. God hath highly exalted Him, given Him a name above every name, Every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Saul's kingdom was torn away from him because of his and his people's sin. But our Lord Jesus was punished in our place unto death on the cross and it results in his confirmation as our good king by his Father for all eternity. You see the vast difference. Saul was polluted by the sin of his people, but Christ was never polluted by the sin of his people. Rather, he sanctifies and glorifies his people and brings us unto righteousness. And his righteousness is imputed to us. And rather than the kingdom being ripped away from him like Saul's was by God, Christ is confirmed. He's raised again in power and glory. He's confirmed to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is confirmed as our good King Jesus for all eternity. I thought of the words of Horatius Boner's great hymn, Hallelujah for the cross. The cross it standeth fast, defying every blast. The winds of hell have blown the world. Its hate hath shown, yet it is not overthrown. It is the old cross still. 
its triumphs let us tell. The grace of God here shown through Christ the blessed Son who did for sin atone. Twas here the debt was paid, our sins on Jesus laid. So round the cross we sing of Christ our offering, of Christ our living King. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for the cross. It shall never, never suffer loss. Praise God. And so we come around this table and we do not mourn the destruction of our good King Jesus or the pollution of Him by our sin or that He was somehow dragged down into our crimes and implicated in them in such a way as to be morally compromised. No, we celebrate the sacrifice that He made as the perfect Lamb who was always perfect, who will ever be perfect, who was not rendered imperfect by any of the vilest sin laid upon Him by imputation. And yet, He was put to death and punished by God in our place and for our crimes that we might be raised again forever one day unto everlasting life in perfect and complete righteousness from our Lord Jesus. Let's give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. O God our Father, we rejoice in the offering that You gave us in the Lord Jesus. and We thank You that is perfectly acceptable to You in His body that was broken and torn and crushed by wicked men at Your behest and for Your purposes and according to Your good pleasure. And we thank You that in no way did any of this render Christ impure, immoral, besmirched, or in any way reduced in honor and glory and purity and perfection, but that rather you imputed our sin upon Him and so that He might be punished in our place. And we thank You that His sacrifice is to You a sweet-smelling savor, not something rotten or polluted or shameful or degraded. And help it to be to us a sacrifice of a sweet-smelling savor. Help us to agree with You about the glory and perfection and beauty of Your dear Son. And we praise You forever and endlessly that You did not allow our sin to in any way compromise the kingdom of our Lord Jesus or to invalidate His rule or to render Him unworthy. For He is altogether worthy to be our King, for He has redeemed us and saved us by His dying for us. We give You the praise for this bread that pictures that body that was broken for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my Father if He'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the remission of sin. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 188 
in the black book, Isaac Watts' great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Lord of Glory Died, My Richest Gain, I Count But Loss and Poor Contempt on All My Pride, 188. <laughs>